As I mentioned in my prayer, it is uh, not as easy a chapter as you might think, and we'll explain why uh, here in a moment. Uh, let's just review. Uh, last week, we saw that Jesus' ministry was to proclaim entrance into his kingdom through repentance and faith, and that he has come to establish it. And uh, so we are going to see him outline those who make up the kingdom. This is a, there's a context here. It's not two completely different subjects. And as we'll see, as some think that it's not two completely different kingdoms, this is the context of chapter 5. We saw that he sovereignly calls his disciples, uh, and that means he, they become the, he becomes the center of their life. When God calls us unto himself, he becomes our life. We forsake all, and just as those disciples do, and we now follow him. And anything less, Jesus tells us, is not fit for the kingdom of God. And then we also are called to proclaim the same message to the lost, that is, repent and believe. Nothing has changed. And mankind does, needs nothing more than that. That is to get right with God and come to know him and to worship him as their God. There is just nothing more important than that. Um, we uh, also didn't, I didn't, uh, I referred to this, but didn't read it. But uh, part then of that, as we see our calling is to go and tell the world that there is a Savior. And, and I thought Psalm 40 kind of goes along with that, where he says he drew up, he drew me up from the pit of destruction. So David is 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 telling, speaking the gospel. He's not going to be quiet about his Lord and Savior. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and put their trust in the Lord. I have told the glad news of deliverance to the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know. I have not hidden your deliverance from within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And so we do that. We don't want to do that uh, today as well. We, want to, we don't want to hide the faithfulness of the Lord from the great congregation. And... Uh, and for, and not only, of course, to uh, proclaim these things to the church, but we know that we are to go into all the world. Um, then, uh, just down in verse 16, he goes on to say, But many, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you, and may those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. So what a great testimony that is. You know, if you're always kind of struggling, what should I say at our testimony meetings? Well, read Psalm 40. Great is the Lord. As for me, I was poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me, took thought of me, and he saved me by his blood. And so what a great testimony that would be. Now, then, as we come to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as I entitled it, this is going to be really an overview. We're not. We're going to look a little bit more at chapter at verse one, but I want us to understand what we're to get out of this chapter, how we're to read it, because if you get that wrong, you're you're going to have a lot of problems, and and many have struggled with how to live out Matthew five, or even if it applies to us. 
It is said that this sermon is the most well-known and studied discourse in the world, which by itself, as a pastor, I would immediately assume there's going to be a lot of disinformation on it when you consider uh, all the different splinter groups of Christianity, all the nominal Christians out there, all the uh, social gospel Christians who take uh, sermons like this from Jesus and completely misapply it, one can only uh, wonder what kind of misinformation is out there. Um, As is usually the case, when one approaches texts isolated from the context, as well as the rest of Scripture, you can assume that you're going to run into problems. And certainly that's the case here. When we get our uh, overall hermeneutic wrong, then we're going to come into all, we're going to uh, come in, we're going to come to this chapter and we're going to have problems. One thing stands out as most important when it comes to understanding Jesus' discourses. And that is, and this applies to really the whole book of Matthew and the other gospels as well. Are they descriptive or are they prescriptive? Uh, does this passage describe those in the kingdom in this particular case? Or is it prescribing a way to get into the kingdom? And we know that the liberal and many so-called Christians follow completely down their face. They do a face plant when it comes to this because they assume that when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, they shall see the kingdom of God, that that means that if I am poor in spirit, that I will somehow see the kingdom of God. And so they look at it as prescriptive, as a way to get to God. And not descriptive, where Jesus, having proclaimed that the kingdom is about to begin, and that you is entered through faith and repentance, is now describing the way of the kingdom, those in the kingdom, what the kingdom will look like. If the kingdom is in our hearts, as we've talked about, then this is the way we are going to think, the way we are going to live. It is not telling us how to get into the kingdom. And if you miss that, you really... Uh, you're going to miss salvation entirely anyway. What we find is that no doubt this sermon is a sample of his general teaching during his ministry. I think this would be a great sample of what he generally spoke when he went different places. You know, there's other, other things as well, other topics, but this I think would probably be a sampling. In fact, some believe it is a sampling of several messages put together. But as usual, Jesus always gets to the heart of the matter when it comes to how his people should live. And surely, uh, this sermon is one of the best. And we will it will cover a, a great spectrum of what being a Christian is all about. But it is not a prescription of how to be accepted by God at the pearly gates. We want to make that very clear. I don't think in this group that we that's anything we've got to worry about, but I don't know. Uh, there might be some sitting here now who still think that as long as I'm good enough, I'll get to heaven. And there couldn't be a more dangerous thing to think uh, in all of, of the universe. So to even think that this is to show you uh, that you will not listen to God at all. Um, let me start it over. To even think this, just to think that is prescriptive is to show that you're really not listening to God at all. You don't know his word, and even though God 
has made it very clear in the scripture that we are saved through faith in the finished work of Christ to think of anything in the Gospels, any of the, you know, any of the writings in red, Jesus' words, as Jesus uh, telling us that we can somehow work our way to heaven would be a deadly mistake. Now let's consider some of the difficulties some have seen in this sermon beyond that. Uh, in particular, I think actual Christians, difficult, difficulties actual Christians have seen. If you think this is prescriptive, I would say you're probably a nominal Christian. You're outside of the kingdom. Remember Jesus told Nicodemus that you enter the kingdom through the new birth. And so if you think that you enter the kingdom through good works, then you're not in the kingdom, right? But, but actual Christians struggle with how to understand this. And so let's just deal quickly with that. Uh, again, we have to remember John 3 is telling us how to enter the kingdom. So just because the gospel isn't laid out for us in not just this sermon, but in any of Jesus' teachings, Jesus never does what Paul and the other apostles do later on, say that uh, if you're going to be saved, you've got to repent and believe in the finished work of, of me and be saved. You know, he hasn't, I think that would be confusing because he hasn't gone to the cross yet. But just because Jesus doesn't present the gospel as Paul does, doesn't mean that he means something other than what Paul means. That he's not, that he's preaching a social gospel. And this is what many Muslims, this is why many are lost because they think that because Jesus didn't speak of salvation by faith, apart from the law as Paul does, that Paul somehow has hijacked Christianity and made salvation differently than than Jesus did. Well, of course, that's to divide the word of God. That's to say that the the Holy Spirit uh, wasn't inspiring one or the other, right? Of course, we know that's not the case. You've got to look at all of Scripture together. Romans 3 reminds us that no one is able to, to do any of these things until they're born again. We've all gotten out of the way. And you can't tell a rebel who's going out of the way, who isn't seeking God, that the way to be saved is to stop being a rebel and start seeking God. When uh, Romans 3 is clear, that's not going to happen until God uh, changes, uh, changes us. So, some dispensationalists, for instance, have confused, have, I think caused con- con- confusion, because of their insistence that the kingdom that Jesus is talking about is the one promised to the Jews. And so now you begin to see how important it is to understand how the covenants work together and why we make such a thing of that. If you believe, as many do, that the Old Testament promises were for the nation of the Jews only, and that they still have something, this kingdom is waiting in the future, then you sit here and you think, what kingdom is Jesus talking about? And you have to you have to conclude to be consistent that Jesus is talking about the kingdom that he's offering to the Jews. As they crucify him, they have rejected the Messiah, and so under in dispensational thought, the kingdom is going to be postponed until a later age. And so as we come to chapter 5, now all of a sudden we've got a problem. Because our theology has caused, making us say, this doesn't apply to me. Yeah, this is to the Jewish kingdom. 
And I'm not part of that. I'm in the church. So you've got a problem here, right? And so, um, they, they don't believe, and some don't believe that it applies to us. Now, now to be honest and, and fair, there are a lot of dispensationalists who realize that that really makes no sense. And so they inconsistently do teach this as applying to us. Because, because I think in their heart they know better. But their theology, uh, it makes it, this is inconsistent to say that because they don't believe we're in the kingdom, the kingdom is later, but yet Jesus clearly is, is teaching what the kingdom looks like, right? Now, just so you know, I'm not making this up. Um, let me quote a couple of well-known dispensationalists. First of all, C.I. Schofield, who wrote the Schofield Reference Bible, probably the single most a thing that that has done more to propagate dispensationalism in America than anything else, I would imagine. He said of this sermon, the Sermon of the Mount, in its primary application, gives neither the privilege nor the duty of the church. So he says, not only is not the duty of the church to obey this, it, that the privileges of it don't apply to the church. Now that's old school, as we call old school dispensationalism. But but at least he's being uh, he's being consistent with his theology. More recently, Charles Ryrie, uh, I used to have the Ryrie uh, Study Bible back. Uh, my, my my wife got that for me back when we were still in dispensationalism. Uh, and but he was a he's a well known uh, dispensationalist, and he would say he was of course taught at at uh Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, he wrote, if a businessman today practiced the Sermon on the Mount, he would go broke. In other words, in his mind, you really can't do this. Uh, this is uh, this is for an ideal situation in the millennium. And that it, this doesn't work now. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, but that just it undermines the whole uh, sermon. But there you get an idea. Again, so there are a lot of dispensations who do teach this. I think they're being they're being inconsistent, uh, but it is interesting that you're holding to a system that these men championed in a sense, and yet at the same time you realize something is drastically wrong, very inconsistent with that position. So I put that out. I don't know if there's anybody here who would go that far, but there are certainly those like that. No, we need to understand that this is a sermon not spoken to governments, and, and that's part of Ryrie's problem, because he's thinking that, well, the, the governments, you know, when it, when Jesus says, turn the other cheeks, that that, that that means governments must turn the other cheek. Well, no, the, the, this wasn't written to governments, it's written to Christians in the kingdom. It, it wouldn't work for governments in that sense. It's for uh, individuals living in a sinful world, not in an ideal kingdom. And of course, it is precisely to us, living in this evil world, that makes this so wonderful and so needed. This this will bring about persecution, as Jesus talks about. We'll see that even in the Beatitudes, but that's okay. We still live in a way that honors the Lord, because this is, as we're going to see here, it's a kingdom that is in our hearts. It's, It's who we are, we must live this way. And I think also um, verse, verses 10 and 11 should dispel 
such thinking, because it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. This would have no bearing in the future kingdom, where Jesus is supposedly reigning from Jerusalem. There's not going to be any, the church is not going to be persecuted. Now, I say that facetiously because I don't believe any such kingdom will exist. But you see how inconsistent that is because you're saying that this this can only apply to the Jews or to the millennial kingdom. Well, then what this verse would make any sense in that context. Now, again, to be fair, there are dispensations who realize that's a problem. And uh, so they would say, well... Notice that verse 3 and verse 10 are in the present tense. See, verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then, you've got all this future stuff. And then, verse 10, it goes back to present tense. So they say, well... Uh, the first and the last one apply to all of us, but everything in between applies to the future kingdom. Well, uh, I don't think that's helpful at all. I think that's extremely poor exegesis, and is just trying to fit your system at all costs into the text. And uh, I think that's a horrible way to try to get around that. Instead, let's keep this in the context of which Jesus has been stating plainly that the kingdom is about to begin. And let's assume that Jesus and John weren't mistaken, as we've already talked about. And the kingdom did begin at Pentecost. It was about to begin. Then we would assume that he is explaining what the subjects of that kingdom are going to look like. Remember, the kingdom is not the world. The kingdom is within us. The church is a physical manifestation of the kingdom. The kingdom is within. So he's merely describing how people in the kingdom live their lives, what the kingdom looks like. Quickly, let me point out that some see this as a clarification of the Old Testament, and I'll, and I'll explain this more a little bit as we go along, but um, there are those who, uh, especially our covenant theologian brothers, who see us under the Old Covenant, see the Ten Commandments as still just as binding as they were back then, and so uh, when they read this, they, uh, they, they said Moses was the lawgiver, and so when Jesus comes along and says Moses said this, but I say unto you that Jesus is merely restating what Moses said. And I would say no, Jesus is the new lawgiver. Jesus is is not re reemphasizing and rehashing the old covenant. He is establishing a new covenant and a new kingdom, and he's not giving contradictory laws to what Moses said, but he's expanding on those laws, as I'll talk about in a moment. He's showing that, that, that those laws can only be uh, kept from the heart. And so as the new and final lawgiver, he's the one who decides what the kingdom is going to look like. So he's not just repeating Moses. He is establishing a new and better kingdom with better laws. And that's, that's how I would look at this. That's part of the difference between covenant theologians or covenant theology and what I would what I consider myself to be a new covenant theologian. We're not in the 
different administrations of the same covenant, as the covenant theologian says. We are in a new covenant uh, that even Hebrews later on will say is, is established on better promises. It is, we have a different, not, not that godliness is different, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, but the laws have changed. We're not under the same laws. Some of them are, are the same. But we're under the law of Christ now. He's the king. Things have changed. And, and there are those who don't who want to see everything pretty much staying the same. And that's why they continue to baptize babies. Because they, they think that we're under the same covenant. That they were under the old, covenant, uh, the old Testament. And it just doesn't work. And that's why, of course, we have some of the differences that we do. All right, so I believe Jesus is raising the bar and expecting more than the Old Testament saints, that more than was expected of the Old Testament saints. He's not just a new Moses. He is the king who is arriving in the kingdom. It's, it's a kingdom that works differently than the previous kingdom. That's why the laws are different. In the previous kingdom, all the Jews had to do was uh, worship only Yahweh, and conformed to the outward law, and uh, everything was okay. They'd stay in the land. Now, they weren't saved. They didn't save them. They're saved the same way we are. Only those who uh, were saved internally were saved. But under the old covenant, as long as you outwardly kept the law, everything was good. God would bless you and keep you in the land. When you turned from the Yahweh to serve other gods, you were first kicked out of the land. But things have changed today. God expects more of us. He expects inward change. Now, he expected it in the Old Covenant. There's no doubt. Remember, he said, circumcise your hearts. He, he, he hated lip service alone. But the problem was, they, did, they weren't given the power. The average Jew wasn't given the power to obey the Lord from the heart. And that's why we need a new covenant, where God says, I will write my... Laws in your heart, and I will cause you to walk in my ways. So we need something new. We need something better. We need the internal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, not what they had in the Old Testament. So that's why we have to understand that things have changed. And when we do that, I think we'll have a better understanding of Matthew 5 overall. And these are things I'm kind of laying the foundation for as we go forward. And so we see this as Jesus ushering in the consummation of the ages. Christ's kingdom is not a parenthetical stage because the Jews rejected the Messiah, so the kingdom's got to be postponed. No, the kingdom is has begun. We are in the final age before the eternal state. What he is teaching is the pinnacle of what it means to be godly. While there is some obvious similarities to what we find in the Old Testament, because at the end of the day, God doesn't change, and what's godly and what's holy will always be so. But many of the laws have changed because what kind of material we wear and how we uh, farm our land and all that were types and shadows of Christ's work. And so those things have all passed away, and, and now we only worry on serving the Lord, because he has become our law. So while it is obvious there's some similarity to what we read in the Old Testament, the Old Testament clearly emphasizes, excuse me, Jesus here clearly emphasizes the inner man and teaches that outward actions 
that don't arise from proper motivations don't accomplish anything. Something that the old covenant wasn't overly concerned with. Again, it was mentioned hypocrisy was not God didn't like it. He hated hypocrisy. But the but now we see that Jesus is saying now that we have the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, something more is expected of us. Not just that we don't murder. Because remember the Ten Commandments just said don't murder. Or excuse me, yeah, don't murder. Jesus says, well, even that's not enough. Not, you can't just not commit the act of murder. There's got to be something in your heart that doesn't want to murder. You see, that, that's why there's a huge difference here. Yes, the Lord expected Israel to love and delight in him. But that was not necessary for them to keep the covenant and stay in the land. Take it at face value, we are forced to conclude that Jesus is making plain what was often missed in the Old Testament. That is, man can never do good things and be accepted by God. See, the the, the Jews thought they could keep the law. And, and many of them completely missed the point. No, you can't keep the law. Man can never do good things to be accepted by God. God must enable him to do what is right. So good works are only good works if they arise from the heart of love to God. And any other work for any other reason is not good. It is evil. And so verse 20, for instance, here in our text, isn't contradicting this uh, what Jesus is saying here when he said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And you read that, and you say, well, that sounds like he's saying you've got to do better than even the Pharisees if you want to get into heaven. Well, again, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. In other words, how am I going to get into the kingdom of heaven? I've got to be perfectly righteous. Even if the Pharisees could perfectly keep the law, that's not enough. I've got to be perfectly righteous before God. How's that going to happen? Through having the righteousness of Christ uh, imputed to me. Now, he, he's not going to explain all that, but, but we looking back, we can see that that's the only way our righteousness can be what it should be, through Jesus Christ. And so verse 20 isn't contradicting the rest of the New Testament. It's pointing out um, those who thought that the Pharisees were the highest pinnacle said, no, look, keeping the law... Uh, is, alone is not going to do it. Something more is needed. What is needed, of course, is perfection. And it is here that Jesus shows that outward keeping of the law will only get you the hell fire. In fact, verse 48, when we come to the end of the chapter, he, he can kind of concludes that thought by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think confirms what I says. He's not saying that you've got to try this a little bit harder than Pharisees. No, you've got to be absolutely perfect if you're going to be in the kingdom of God. So we've got to be careful how we read the passage. Because if you think God is laying out conditions that must be met in order to earn a place in heaven, you're missing the whole point. Equally dangerous is seeing that this is merely a social gospel where all that matters is us doing the best we can. Just love people. And that's how some who don't know the Bible, they read this, and it sounds to them that Jesus is giving up, telling us the best way to live, and it, it's just do the best you can. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the bar, and you just try to meet it. And, and of course, they deny 
John 3, Romans 3, and they, they, if they even know them at all. God saves us to have a right relationship with him. And this will lead to good relationships with some and worse relationships with others. And so, uh, another way we can say this is we saw in verse 20 that unless you, another way, in fact, verse 20, remember we said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Another way we could say that is that unless you repent and are saved by the blood of Christ and follow him, and show the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life, you will never see the kingdom of God. In other words, this is what it looks like. Those in the kingdom look like this, and if you don't look like that, you're not in the kingdom. And I think when we get to Matthew 7 and chapter 25, we'll see the same thing. All those who said, Lord, Lord, have we not done many wonderful works in your name? And he says, depart from you, I never knew you. So just obeying the, the Sermon on the Mount is not enough. And so, you just can't ever go there or you're going to be confused. The kingdom of the Old Testament was physical even while God's people have always been spiritual. And this has caused some to miss the point that the Old Testament kingdom taught in types and that this kingdom now of Jesus is the reality. This is the spiritual. The Old Testament kingdom was people who in type look like the church but now having the Holy Spirit in us, we are the kingdom. The kingdom is concerned with submission of the heart and is not concerned with politics and national boundaries and all the, and many of the things that uh, the old economy was concerned about. And many of the problems in Christianity through the centuries have been because too many times people think that the New Testament kingdom should look a lot like the Old Testament Israel. Even though Jesus said that the kingdom is within you. And remember in John 18 when he says it, my uh, kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my, my fathers would rise up to, to deliver me, to defend me. But that's not what the kingdom looks like. It's what it looked like in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, the kingdom of God is composed of people who obey the Lord, who, who love the Lord. <clears throat> so governments can't govern the kingdom of God. Governments can't spread it. They can't enforce it. They really don't have anything to do with it. And when we see governments try to enforce it, it never works out very well. Mostly governments just persecute the kingdom of God. Now, biblical laws are good, and when we see what happens to a country when they forsake biblical law, there's no doubt about that. But At the end of the day, even if all of the the laws of this nation were biblical, you you would at the best just have legalism. Because without regeneration and conversion, they're just obeying laws that they're told to obey. So John the Baptist would be great in the kingdom of Christ because all those who are humble and serve, rather than be served, are called great in the kingdom. Yet John was completely outside the political and social norm. His message was considered absurd and irrelevant. Something in this sermon uh, would make this this world think you're a loser in the Sermon on the Mount. The the things that Jesus talks about, if we obey them, the world looks at us as if we're a bunch of losers. Because the world's gospel is to assert yourself. 
Jesus says, no, my followers uh, serve. The world says, stand up for yourself. Be proud of yourself. Elevate yourself. Defend yourself. Avenge yourself. Serve yourself. But the characteristics of the kingdom of, of Jesus is, is the complete opposite. And that's why I say that those in my kingdom don't live like that. So Jesus' message is not contrary, excuse me, is not only contrary to this world system, but it's contrary to the world's religion. The Pharisees thought that they could be good enough for God. They were legalists. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The Sadducees saw religion as something that just made society better. And they were compromisers. They just kind of left God out of all of it. The Essenes, which is the group that uh, sometimes John is associated with, they were the ones who kind of went away from everybody and just lived out in the wilderness. They were austere separatists. And they afflicted the body and denied themselves comforts. Instead of using all things for the glory of God, they felt they had to just say no to everything. Sin was out there in people, and so if I got away from society, I could be more holy. They were kind of like the forerunners of the, mon- the, the monasteries. It's funny how Jesus never told, uh, he never lived like that, he never tells us to live like that. Paul says, do all things for the glory of God, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. He didn't say you've got to give up everything that God has made. Then you had the zealous. They were a fourth group at this time. Uh, and they were the nationalists. They, they wanted to see the kingdom of God with borders. Drive out the Romans and we'll set up our own kingdom. And you got a lot up there. Some of the Christian nationalists out there today, that's a loaded term and there's a lot of different good and bad things about that. But there are those who think we just need to uh, take control of our country and everything will be okay. Well, it might make some things better, but it's not going to solve problems but that's where the zealous to them serving God was to set up the kingdom by physical force and physical boundaries and then they'd rule it as they saw fit so you see and it's still prevalent today you got those who say well we've got to go back everything new is bad it got to go back to the old ways or you got the Sadducee you go forward forget all everything we're doing we got to do everything differently or uh, you got to we got those who say you got to go away. You got to you got to just get away from the world entirely. That's what kind of like the Amish and the Mennonites. Just get away from everything. Or finally, you've got those who we go against. We're just against everything. And so nothing's really changed in that sense. Oh, but in essence, the kingdom of God is to do all things for the glory of the Lord. Follow Him. We don't have to go anywhere. We just need to live the kingdom out in our lives and let the Lord take that and use it as he would. And so let me just say something about verse 1 here, uh, where it says that he went up to the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. That's a little odd in our way of thinking. Um, And one of the ways this verse right here teaches us that what it is to live in the kingdom is because today we would expect that the preacher or the one giving the speech would stand up to speak. And what's going on here is more than G- Jesus knowing that he's going to get tired so he's sitting down to get comfortable. Because when a rabbi taught, he would sit down to show that what he was saying was official. It was authoritative. 
So when he sat down, he was sitting down uh, in that sense. To stand or to walk while you're teaching was considered informal teaching, and Jesus certainly did that. But here he sits down because he is, in a sense, taking the place of Moses, and he's about to give the new laws for the new kingdom. Today we have professors who have a chair, and that's an official position to teach. Of course, we all know that the Pope, when he is going to say something that supposedly is infallible, which he hardly ever really does, he sits, it's called ex cathedra, from the chair. And that's what's going on here. Jesus is assuming the position of lawgiver in God's kingdom, which makes sense since he's the king and he, of course, is the Lord. It also makes his take on service take precedent over any Old Testament law, whether it be through Moses and the angels. Uh, what he is saying is the final authority on all things. So it's not that God has changed his standards of godliness. As I said, he always wanted Israel to circumcise their heart. It's just that they didn't have to to still maintain the covenant. So they were types of the church, but they weren't the church. Jesus assumes the highest authority, and all those who claim to be his followers obey his word. And that's just, that you know, it's either that or you're not in it, as Jesus says over and over again. So unlike every other kingdom where laws are set forth, and if people obey outwardly, even if they don't want to, they're still okay. That's, that's the kingdom we live in, right? you got the laws out there. And the Constitution and, and, the, and the lesser laws, they don't care whether you agree. You just obey and everything's good. If you don't, you're going to jail. You're paying a fine, right? And that's how all kingdoms are. And that's how the false religions are. If you're a Muslim, the Muslim doesn't care about your heart. He doesn't care whether you agree. As long as five times a day you say your prayers and you do what you're told, they're good. You see, that's the kingdoms of the world. And that's what the the, uh, the, what the kingdom of Israel was like that too. It doesn't mean that, that God didn't want them to be holy, but that was a different covenant that they lived under. And so, Everyone knows that to try and reform morally with no change of heart only leads to frustration. You cannot live like the king if you don't love the king because the essence of the kingdom uh, and the very law of laws is that you love the Lord with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. That's why Jesus can say you can't just not murder. You can't just not steal. You have to give. You have to love. Because uh, the the essence of the kingdom is to love the Lord all of our heart, mind, body, and soul. The Lord absolutely will not accept people conforming to outward laws in their heart. They don't want to. That's why you can't make sense of the sermon without a regenerate heart. All the rules we are to obey are because we love the lawgiver. To separate obedience to the law from the lawgiver is really to despise him. You can't, you can't obey the Bible and hate the lawgiver. And so perfection in this life is impossible. But if we have hearts that love God supremely and know how sinful and deceitful we are by nature, we have this fundamental change in our life so that we now can start to pursue this kind of righteousness. This sermon is not just some lofty goal that we can never follow 
so he might as well not try, it's a description of the way we think. Saints think. It's a description of the things that we love. It's the general direction that we go if we love the Lord. And Jesus is never afraid to hold the standard high, not just because we can't obey it perfectly, and uh, but, but he holds it high because that's the standard we are to pursue. Yeah, yeah, we'll never reach it in this life, but that doesn't mean that we aren't to do the best we can, that which is right. So there's a proper spirit in doing this, lest we become judgmental and proud. But there will be no passage of how to go about encouraging and rebuking the church in, in, in church discipline if it weren't possible by the Holy Spirit's help to conform to this. Again, we don't, we, we know we'll never be perfect, but some people want to say because we're, we're not perfect, we don't even have to try, that God really doesn't care. And I think what we see here with Jesus in this sermon is that God does care how we live and that he does expect change. And we are to pursue those things. Again, why would there be pastors on church discipline if uh, God wasn't concerned about these things? So God help us from having the mindset that every time we read of Jesus or an apostle commanding us to, to be and to live godly, our first thought is some excuse or ask the preacher being legalist or something like that. Because this, because otherwise you're saying Jesus was a legalist. This is not just what the kingdom looks like in heaven. It's what the kingdom looks like in the kingdom age. It's what the kingdom looks like in your heart. And I hope you understand that. That you say, well, I've, I've hated. I, I've, in my mind, I have committed adultery. So I can't be in the kingdom. No, uh, he, he's telling us what our hearts are to look like. He's, 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 he's showing us what sin looks like. Sin is not just outward actions. Sin is things that are in the heart. Sins of commission and sins of omission. It's what we don't do. It's things that we should do and we don't do. The sermon helps us understand how much we need the blood of Jesus Christ because we can't even begin to save ourselves. So it begins with hearts that have been given new life and changed radically. But we aren't going to apologize and neither are we going to lower the standards just uh, to make people feel comfortable. And if we love the Lord, we're okay with that. We want to do our best, right? Remember that God's plan of redemption is to return us to what we were created to be, a people that were to glorify the Lord in all things. So we are the new humanity, even though we're not completely finished yet, we are the new humanity. We are the ones who will inherit the earth. Everything about us should be different than the world's way. Someone said that the Beatitudes of the world go like this, Blessed are the rich, for they will have it all. And have it all now. Blessed are those at ease in the flesh, for they are content with themselves and don't need others. Blessed are the arrogant, for people defer to them. Blessed are those who fight for the good things in life, for they will get them. Blessed are the sophisticated, for they will have a good time. Well, the problem with all this is that it's all temporal. It might bring happiness for a moment, but it doesn't bring happiness in the next life. These people will have their life now. They have their best life now, but they don't have eternal life. Let me just finish by explaining what the word blessed means. We know that 
you've heard before that the word blessed means to be happy. Uh, but we need to understand, of course, what we talked about biblically. Happy has the, comes from the idea of hap, happenstance. The, what's happening around me, I'm, I'm happy based on what's happening around me. And we know that that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Although it does mean, have that, that sense of being happy, of being content, of being full of joy. The Greeks used it for their gods who were happy in themselves because they were above the problems of mortals. They would use their blessed. Of course, if you know anything about Greek mythology, you know that they were so riddled with their own sin and their own problems that they were, that's the happiness and I don't want any part of it. But we see biblically what uh, blessed means in Psalm 68. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. So here you have the true God who does sit above all the problems of man, who is perfectly happy in his own, uh, doing his own will, who is always content in all things. Ascribe to this one perfect happiness, perfect blessedness. That's happiness. And that's the, the kind that does isn't affected by anything going on around us. Thus, this blessedness is a state in which we have because we have been seated in the heavenlies with Christ. The reason I can be called blessed is because my my happiness is all wrapped up in Christ's future, not mine. Not my what's happening around me. It is not something that we can attain unto. It is a result of being united to Christ. It is something we have that cannot be taken away and so we would, uh, we can give up the world and still be blessed, unlike the beatitude of this world, who could only be happy if they had what they wanted. And what we will find is that if we follow Christ, our blessedness will be enhanced, not lost. We can sit in a dungeon for the rest of our lives and still be blessed, because that's just a, a fraction, tiny fraction of the time of our existence. The Christian's joy is not based on circumstances that produce artificial feelings of happiness. You know, you can be driving down the road at night and just as happy as a lark, not knowing that the bridge is out and around the next corner you're going to die. So you're happy, but you shouldn't be. You just don't know it, right? So our joy is based on the object reality, objective reality that transcends what our eyes can't see in the material world or what, what our eyes do see. How many times has someone felt happy and secure because they don't realize that, that the market's going to crash the next day and they're going to lose everything? But they're happy, but their happiness is ill-fated. Uh, uh, so you might feel secure, but it's because you don't realize what's, that you're, uh, the Lord's going to require your soul the next day. So let's learn what a blessing truly is so that we can rejoice in the beatitude of blessing. What makes us blessed is whatever brings us closer to Christ. It makes it God bigger in our eyes. 
So blessing here that he speaks of is the joy that comes in knowing and serving the Lord. It looks forward to its final form, but it's something that we can enjoy now. I can be blessed even while I mourn because that mourning brings me into God's favor. So from now on, the Bible is going to be very clear that the kingdom and godliness is not about material things, it's not about borders, not about fleshly comforts, it's not about politics, it's about what's going on in your heart. It's about godly living in all circumstances, in all places, at all times, the glory of God. And this is how we want to approach the Sermon on the Mount. I know it's a mouthful, and uh, I think we'll hopefully... Expand on those things as we go forward. But is there any questions quickly? Anything that maybe you didn't quite uh, understand?